0: Galatians chapter 1 is where we're going to be for a few minutes this morning uh, and uh, for a few minutes for the next several Sunday mornings as we be- uh, begin uh, a brand new <clears throat> series of messages on the heels of about five weeks uh, in a discussion about our mission as a church. And this series really is something of a continuation uh, of that from one of Paul's most important uh, letters, I shouldn't have to tell you, so all of us have wrestled with it, one of the greatest dangers that Christianity faces and that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ faces, it's a great challenge to the overall health and the overall growth of of our church, any local church, is the danger of legalism. Y'all ever heard of legalism? You ever dealt with a legalist before? And if you don't know what that is, of course, by legalism, I'm just talking about any system of religion that elevates um, the keeping of religious rules or religious law as conditions of either earning the acceptance of God or the acceptance of the group or, frankly, in most uh, of the cases, both of those. Legalism requires strict adherence to a code. And much of the time, the code is not altogether biblical. Isn't that right? We, we tend to make up our own rules as conditions for acceptance, our own qualifications in terms of what we think God will use as conditions of acceptance with Him. Have you noticed Jesus dealt a lot with that in His ministry? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. He dealt quite a bit with legalists throughout the course of His three-year ministry. And here's the thing. Uh, those legalists were almost exclusively religious folk. I mean, they were religious types. We call them Pharisees or Sadducees or Essenes or sometimes zealots, scribes, teachers of the law. You know all those folks that we read about in the gospel accounts. These are people that all claim to know God. In fact, if you press them, they would claim to love God. They're all people who would claim to have been serving God in their life and in their ministry. And ironically, in the face of all of that personal testimony, Jesus would look at them and call them a one-word name, which was what? Hypocrite, that's right. He's the, these are the people that Jesus looked at and identified. I know that God is on your mind, but I also know... That even though God's on your mind, He's not in your heart. These are the people about whom Jesus said in Matthew 15, "This people honors me with their lips. But their hearts are, what? Far from me. In vain do they worship me? Well they worship. they go through the motions of worship, but their worship is meaningless to God. It's empty. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, in other words, revealed truth, teaching as revealed truth the commandments of men. In other words, stuff they just made up as part of the code, as part of conditions for their acceptance and conditions they believe for God's acceptance. And you know, the thing about legalism is, frankly, uh, all of us in the church still struggle with it today. It had not gone anywhere for thousands of years. Most people that I know would claim that they really don't like rules. You know, if you, make, you want to make somebody man just give them a list of rules most of the time that they have to adhere to, and they'll look for opportunity to break the rule, right? Because most people genuinely don't like rules. But here's the thing. Here's what I've also found. When it pertains to matters of religion, people do like rules. Just tell me what to do, right? It's exactly what happens in Roman Catholicism. Here's seven things. You do these seven things, keep them religiously, you'll be right with God and right with the group. Islam is the same way. Only their list is only five. You do five things, do these five things, man, you're good with the group and you're good with God. Just tell us what to do. Most Christians have a real hard time with grace, truth be told, because they're not quite sure what to do with it. It's free. It's open, you know, and just tell me what I need to be doing. Give me a checklist because I keep one on my desk every day regarding things I need to do. A tick list, a to-do list. That's what I want when it comes to my relationship with God. And the problem is that list Tends to get expanded, expanded, expanded. Stuff gets on it that's just made up out of whole cloth. And before you know it, you've got a very legalistic lifestyle. Keep the code and you're in. Break the code and you're out. And I can say one of two things is true about everybody in the house today. You are either a legalist today or you're a recovering legalist one of the two. In fact, let's just do a little exercise together. Would you say this out loud together with me? I am am. a recovering Pharisee. Yeah, now turn to your neighbor and say, you know that's right. Yeah. Because we all battle with this every single day. And this is one of the reasons why now more than ever, the church needs clarity. We need clarity about who we are. We need clarity about why we're here. We need clarity about what we're supposed to believe. We need clarity about what we're supposed to be doing as we wait on the Lord Jesus Christ to come again. That's why this is a very important follow-up message to our message about our mission at Hillcrest and our values at Hillcrest, because we can find the answers to all of those questions in one of the most important books of the Bible, a, a, a piece of the New Testament I haven't treated since I was in seminary, and the moon was made out of cheese back then, man. So it's been a long time since I've did an exhaustive study of Paul's letter to the Galatians, a letter that I believe to be Paul's primary letter, and the reason I call it his primary letters for two reasons, one, because I believe it was likely the first letter that he ever wrote out of the 13. And two, because it's the simplest and the most direct statement about the gospel that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Now, it's not the most comprehensive statement about the gospel that Paul makes. That, of course, would be the letter to the Romans. But Galatians is kind of romans light, if we can phrase it that way. And it's got the it just cuts right to the chase. It gives us what we need to know. It's like me with pre-marriage counseling and couples. I tell them I could keep you here for 13 sessions. If I unpacked everything I thought you had to know to have a successful marriage. But I don't have that kind of time, and neither do you. And so what I'm gonna do is keep you here for four and tell you what I think you have to know. And if you know this and embrace it and abide by it, you'll have a healthy successful marriage. Well, that's kind of the way Galatians is. It's brief. It gives you what you have to know about what I'm calling the essential gospel. That's the title of this series. It will be in for a little bit, the essential gospel, because while Galatians deals with a lot of subjects, it's a, it's a letter, for example, about faith and the critical nature of faith through the Christian life. It's a letter about freedom for freedom. Christ has set us free. Do not be entangled, therefore, again, in a yoke of slavery. It's a letter about grace, as we're going to find out today, even. It's a letter about all of those things. But even more importantly, Galatians is fundamentally a letter about the gospel. Now, today, as we begin our journey into this essential gospel, I want us to take a brief look at Paul's introduction to the letter which is recorded in the first five verses. Introductions matter. Introductions are important. A lot is often said in Paul's introductions, and that's why we do well not to just gloss over them or skip over them. So let's take a look, if we can, to the first five verses of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It'll be on the screen. In fact, why don't we just look at the screen, and we'll read it out loud together. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. amen. Together. Paul, an apostle from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Lord Jesus, we come before you today thanking you for the presence and the power of your eternal word. The living word is with us today in spirit and in truth, Jesus Christ. We have the written word before us today which is your unbounded will for us as a people so speak to our hearts today through the living word and through the written word that the word might be planted deep in our hearts that it might change us that we might live the gospel of Christ in whose name we pray and all God's people said I want to address three questions today from these opening words is kind of get us going. And the first is very simply, who is Paul? Who is Paul? And I raise that question simply because that's the first word that we read right out of the gate. You should remember that one of the trademarks of ancient correspondence is that the signature goes first rather than last, as we tend to do it when we write letters today. People do still write letters, I assume, amen, either written, handwritten, or electronically. And either way, when you do that, you tend to put your name last, right? Uh, Not so in terms of agent correspondence. The name went first so that you would know right up front who was writing to you. And that's exactly what happens here. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. As I read through the six chapters of Romans, I find that Paul majors in these six chapters of this particular letter, not Romans but Galatians, Paul majors on the cross, the cross. This is the only reference to the resurrection of Christ that you find in the whole letter. Now, it's implied because he talks about the gospel throughout the letter. And you can't have a gospel if you've got a dead Lord, right? But he mentions it right out of the gate here, setting the tone for who he is, and he's going to come back to that here in just a moment. But before he does that, Paul wants us to know something about himself that we should all remember, namely that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, we all know that Paul was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a teacher about Jesus. But you should remember as well that before, before Paul came a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Christianity as a very dangerous sect that basically adulterated the purity of Rabbinic Judaism, and he made it his mission in life to do everything that he could to stamp it out and completely eradicate it from the face of the earth. Paul was qualified for that task, he was a very well educated Rabbinic scholar. From the time he was 14, 15, 16, he would have left his home in Tarsus, where he was known then as Saul, and he would have made a journey to Jerusalem, to rabbinic school there, where he would have been educated and was educated uh, in the rabbinic tradition by an ast- astounding legal scholar whose name was Gamaliel. You've probably heard about him. You can read about Gamaliel in the book of Acts. And that, what, a, what a privilege that must have been. That's like being coached in football by Vince Lombardi. Amen top tier education. And Paul was a rising star on the scene. He was going places and everybody knew it. The only thing was God had other plans for him. Can I have an amen? He had his plans, but God had other plans. And the Lord confronted him one day. This risen Christ confronted him. That's bound up in Paul's opening statement. I was called by Christ, whom God raised from the dead. And it was that risen Christ that Paul had that incredible, spectacular encounter with while on the road to Damascus, hunting down, hounding down Christians in order to bring them back to Jerusalem and put them on religious trial for what they were doing to the faith of Judaism. And it wasn't long after that Paul regained his sight and he soon began preaching right there in Damascus. The gospel, the very gospel that he'd been trying to eradicate for all those years. And this is why Paul begins by reminding the Galatians and all of us that first and foremost, that's who he was. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know what the word apostle means? To send, to send. An apostle is somebody that God calls and then God sends. On a mission, it, it's kind of an ambassadorial role that uh, that the one called has. One sent on a mission, one sent as a representative, one sent as a, a message, and that was the function of New Testament apostles. They were called by God, and then they were sent to preaching. That was the mission that they were called to accomplish—to bear witness to the risen Christ. And that was one of the qualifications to be a God-called apostle. You had to have laid eyes on the risen Christ. And so God called them. God had appeared to them in the form of the resurrected Christ. And, of course, for the original 12, they'd been with Jesus for those three years. And they'd walked with Jesus. And then they'd all seen Jesus and walked with Jesus 40 days after his resurrection Paul had a different experience coming m- much later where the Lord appeared to him personally, called him personally. We believe that the Lord spent extended time with him in visionary form. And that, of course, qualified him to be an apostle just as it did the original 12. And so that's what makes an apostle. They had to have seen the risen Christ, and they had to have been called to that task by the risen Christ which meant, of course, for later purposes for all of them, that because that was true, because they had seen and been with and spent time with the risen Christ, and because Christ had personally called them and sent them to this task, you know what that meant practically for the church. It meant that the teaching of the apostles was to be taken as teaching that came straight from heaven. It was authoritative teaching. Their teaching was to be considered for them in the first century in exactly the same way that my teaching from this book is to be taken today. It's not so much my teaching, but these words. These are words. you all believe this is a word of God straight out of heaven? Well, the teaching of the apostles, because this didn't exist back then. The Old Testament did, but most people didn't have copies of the Old Testament sitting around their house like we do. You went to the synagogue. You had it read publicly to you. And the New Testament wasn't even a thing then. So how did that early church grow, and how did they develop, and how did they flower? Apostolic teaching, the verbal teaching of the God-called men and men that they charged to act on their behalf. We call that the apostolic teaching of the New Testament era, and it was to be taken absolutely as authority, authoritative, straight from heaven, all right? So that's very important. And it communicates that Paul was no ordinary man. He was like them, but he was very much unlike them, and that he had this special divine calling that the Lord gave him personally, a God-called apostle, something John Calvin called the highest order of the church. The problem was not everybody at that time accepted that of Paul. Paul had his enemies, didn't he? He had people that didn't like him. And every preacher that's ever lived since then has had the same issue. As speaking truth often arouses sometimes the best in people, other times the worst in people. And that was especially true with the Apostle Paul. There were people on the scene during the early stages of his ministry, and really all throughout his ministry, that made it their mission in life to cut the legs out from under him and to undermine his authority and undermine his teaching. And so what they, the only way that they knew to do that was to cast doubt, cast a shadow over Paul's claim to be what he claims to be here, namely an apostle. I mean, if you can discredit Paul's apostleship, and that's what his enemies tried to do, it's what his enemies who came into Galatia after Paul had started the churches there and left, he had enemies that came in behind him and said, Paul's really not an apostle. He got all that stuff from the guys who are apostles in Jerusalem. He went down there and took a two-week J term. And he drank water out of a fire hydrant. They told him what the gospel was. And then he came up here and told y'all that he got it straight from the risen Christ. He didn't get it straight from the risen Christ. He got it from those guys in Jerusalem. And everybody knows it. So you can't trust him and you can't trust the gospel that he's teaching. In fact, we're the guys that you need to trust. And they would smile and their teeth would sparkle when they did it. Don't listen to him. You listen to us. And in several of the messages that are to come in this series, you're going to see how a lot of that stuff took shape and what the apostle Paul did in responding to these charges. Paul's a phony. Paul's a latecomer. Paul's never seen the risen Christ. He wasn't even around. He didn't even believe in the guy. So Paul makes clear at the beginning that his apostleship didn't come from men. Does he not make that clear? Paul, an apostle. And what does he say? What are the first words out of his mouth? Not from a man. My calling is not from humanity. I didn't get it from a man. I didn't get it through any men. And by men, plural, he's talking about the Jerusalem elders. Peter and James and John. You remember those guys? That's who he's talking about. I didn't get it from any single guy. I didn't get it from any council of elders. I was called through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Man, you got to be bold to make a claim like that, who raised him from the dead. And that made Paul's authority as a communicator of the truth of the gospel no different than the original 12 apostles. What they teach, what I teach, is the same gospel and it carries exactly. The same way. Paul be just as direct a few verses down in chapter 1 here in verses 15 and 16. Notice what he says. Christ who set me apart before I was what? How about that? Not only did Jesus call me to this on the road to Damascus. Let me take you one further. God had this as a plan for my life before I was ever conceived in my mother's womb. He makes exactly the same claim that the prophet Jeremiah does. If you read the Old Testament prophet, the Lord set me apart before I was even born. And then he says, who called me by his grace. That's Paul's way of saying I sure didn't deserve it. In fact, I deserved the exact opposite. So Paul wanted to make very clear here in the opening verses, listen, I'm just here because of God's calling, not because of anything I bring to the table. Christ, who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that purpose statement that I might what? Preach him among the Gentiles. Okay? So I mention all this because this is like a really big deal. Because if if the people who populated the churches of South Galatia couldn't believe Paul, we can't believe him today either. We have to have some basis for accepting these 13 letters that are compiled in your New Testament that bear the name of Paul, and the basis by which we receive this into our lives as divine absolute truth is the same basis upon which they were to receive it. Paul was an apostle from Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ, and set apart before he was even born. Now, they made their mission to discredit that, and if they could, why would they do that? Why would they start here? Because if you discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message. And those false teachers were not preaching the same message as Paul as we are going to see. And so, all that would be left there in Galatia is not the gospel of God's grace, but the gospel of man's legalism. And if all you've got left is legalism, you've got a salvation that's based on human performance, not on the grace of God. And the reason that that's bad news is because there is no way to be sure that you're ever measuring up to God. How would you ever possibly know if you were good enough to get God to accept you? If everything's based on you and your work instead of on God and His work, And that's why the gospel of legalism is not good news, it's bad news. In fact, the gospel of legalism leaves us with no assurance at all, which makes it no gospel at all. Amen. All right? So this is where we begin an understanding of who Paul is and who Paul claimed to be. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? Question number two, to whom is Paul writing? To whom is Paul writing? The answer is revealed in verse 2, to the churches <clears throat> of Galatia. Now, if you're taking notes, you might underline the word churches because that's more than one church. Most of Paul's letters in our Bibles are written to a, either a single church or a single individual. Uh, but this is different. Galatians is not written to a single church. It's written to a coalition of churches in the Roman province of South Galatia, just northwest of modern-day Israel, Paul is basically writing to churches, four of them, at least four of them, maybe more by the time he wrote the letter. But we know that on Paul's first missionary journey that you can read about in Acts 13 and 14, Paul went to the region of Galatia and went across the Roman province of southern Galatia and then backtracked visiting those churches again before coming back to his home church in Antioch. And then in each of the other two missionary journeys that would follow, the second and the third, Paul would begin those journeys by going back to those churches of South Galatia and doing some work of discipleship along the way before he went to new uh, territory. But when we talk about South Galatia, we're talking about four principal churches, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These were the four churches that Paul established in what is now Southern Turkey on his first missionary journey. And when he writes to Galatians, that's who he's writing to, the membership uh, and of those four churches that were established on that first journey. Uh, Galatians is what scholars call an occasional letter, which means that it wasn't written just to say, "Hey, how y'all doing?" Let me tell you what's going on about that new grandbaby of mine. No, it's an occasional letter, which means he's writing in response to a specific occasion, something going on there. And he's writing the letter in order to address happenings that need an apostle to step into it to deal with it. And the issue here, of course, is the issue of legalism, a salvation by legalistic works as opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which measures on the work of Christ and the free gift of God's grace, which we believe salvation to be. That legalism, which came from the false teachers who'd come in behind Paul, was corrupting the genuine gospel. It was adulterating the genuine gospel, and it was throwing the people into incredible confusion. That's what happened. You had some very conservative people Jewish people; these were Jews by birth who had come in behind Paul, uh, ostensibly from the church in Jerusalem, and they they claimed to know Christ. They claimed, just like Paul did, to have had an encounter with Christ and to have uh, prayed to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior to have had an experience where the risen Christ changed their lives. That much we know that they fundamentally claimed themselves. The only problem was when it came to Gentiles, they came in and they said, you know what, we don't believe that only Jews can be saved. We believe Gentiles can be saved too. That much we agree with the Apostle Paul. Gentiles, non-Jews can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul's not telling you but that we're going to tell you, you can take home to the bank as absolute truth. Namely, Gentiles can become born-again followers of Jesus Christ, but they have to become Jews first. Not only must they receive Christ by faith, they then have to embrace the law of Moses, the ceremonial law of Moses. And they have to engage in strict Sabbath-keeping, and they have to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And they have to be careful about who they associated with, uh, who they associate with, lest they become unclean. And most of all, whether they're eight days old or 80 years old, they have to be circumcised. And so that's what they came in and began to teach. Legalism, 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 legalism. These false teachers have garnered a name through the years, typically Judaizers. Y'all have heard that before in your Sunday school classes, connect groups and the like, Judaizers, because they were Jewish and they were co-opting Jewish belief and basically placing it on Christianity as a condition for salvation. And so this is a classic gospel that teaches Christ plus something else in order to be saved. And it still happens all the time around the world today. It's not Christ alone. It's Christ plus. Christ plus works. Christ plus this. Christ plus that. Which, may I add it again, is not a gospel at all. Because there's no good news in that. If you add anything to Christ that involves human merit, human performance, human achievement as a condition for God to accept you, you're left with no assurance whatsoever because you can never know if you've been good enough to get God to accept you. And this is why Paul gets so riled up in Galatians as we'll see in the coming weeks. Because he would be the one that would later write Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Do you remember it? For by grace are you saved through faith And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this is critically important, critically important. And part of the reason why Paul spends time writing the letter. Galatians 2.16 gets to the heart of Paul's argument and this will be a verse we come back to two or three times along the way. It becomes, I think, the key verse in understanding Galatians. We know that a person is not justified by what? Works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. You're looking for one statement to take away is critically important out of Galatians. It's Galatians 2.16. That's the foundational argument that Paul is making. And the truth be told, for 2,000 years the church has been battling internal opponents of the gospel. See, this is an internal struggle that's going on. It's not the world beating down the walls of the church from outside. This is an internal struggle that's taking place where the gospel is uh, under fire. There's an attempt to corrupt it in South Galatia. And the corruption comes with people coming in trying to add human effort to the grace of God as a condition for salvation. This is why Dr. Timothy George calls the letter to the Galatians a tornado warning. A tornado warning for what? A tornado warning against the false gospel of legalism. And that's a theme that Paul's going to pound like a bass drum all the way through the first four chapters of his letter to the Galatians. All right? Who is Paul? An apostle of Jesus Christ called not by men nor through men but through jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead who are the recipients of the letter the churches of galatia churches that paul had established in his first missionary journey in the region of south galatia roman province of south galatia and then final question what does paul hope to accomplish What's Paul hope to accomplish in the writing of the letter to the Galatians? Well, here's here's basically what he wants to do in a nutshell, and this is a nutshell. He wants to clarify the gospel. That's why he writes it, to make sure there's no misunderstanding the gospel of Christ. Because if you don't properly understand the gospel of Christ, nothing that the church does will ever line up completely with the will of God. This is where it all begins. You get this wrong and you'll stumble all over yourselves as a local church. This is the heart of who we are and the heart of what we believe and the heart of what we're supposed to be about as a people. So Paul writes to correct a wrong. He wants to clarify the gospel by explaining exactly what it is. And would you not agree with me that clarity is always a good thing? We need to be clear about what we believe and clear about who we are and clear about why we believe it. The word gospel is used all the time by Christian people, many of of whom don't really have an understanding of what it is. And we're going to be talking about that a lot. The word means good news, but it's often lost in translation. I mean, try as you might, you can't spell gospel without grace. And so any proper understanding of the gospel begins with a proper understanding of the grace of God, because there is no good news unless God does something. It's the reason Paul calls it the gospel of God. It's not man's gospel because man can't do anything to bring it about. Only God can do it. And so the gospel is about what God does, not what we do. It's about what God does for us. Miserable, wretched sinners, as the old songs say, with complete clarity. I mean, modern songwriters try to take the words like, poor and wretched and worm and stuff like that out of the modern songs because they don't want to offend anybody's sensibility. You're a wretched worm. And unless you fully understand that, you'll never understand your need for grace. You'll always make it about you. Look how good I am. Look what I did. Look how much money I've given. Look at all this that I've accomplished. And I did it all in the name of God. It doesn't matter. Because what's at stake in the gospel is not what you or I do. It's what God's done for us. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to accomplish what we need but cannot accomplish ourselves, namely deliverance from sin and the possession of righteousness unto eternal life. See, that's a gift that somebody's got to give us because you and I never be good enough to make it happen ourselves. So grace. And by the way, did you notice that's Paul's first word here in verse 3, which is appropriate because verse 3 is the first shot across the bow to the false teachers in South Galatia. Verse 3, grace to you. That's kind of Paul sticking a finger in their eye. Grace to you and what? Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not through anything that they're doing, not through legalistic acts of self-righteousness. Grace and peace always come to us from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a marvelous statement about the cross who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever. Endeavor. The gospel is the good news of God's grace, which means it had nothing to do with human performance. It's about God's performance. God's performance in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. And the immediate result of our salvation, which is based on the grace of God plus nothing, the immediate result of that for us is peace, which is the second word that Paul uses here. Paul connects peace. Our peace with the grace of God. Grace to you and peace. Grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the immediate result of salvation. Everybody with me? So we receive salvation by the grace of God, and simultaneously we receive as a result of that peace with God because our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 makes that clear. Therefore... Having been justified, saved by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace frees us from the tyranny of human performance as a means of salvation. Peace frees us from the certainty of God's judgment. And that's why salvation necessarily involves both. And so Paul begins with kind of a double handshake. He goes into them and shakes both hands together. Grace and peace. And then he confronts us with how that happens. Through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because are you aware this morning there is no gospel? There is no good news if there's no cross. We have good news of the gospel. Good news of salvation by the grace of God. But only because a tremendous price was paid. And Jesus paid it all by shedding his blood on the cross. Let me give you four things that Paul says in just this little statement. First of all, he shows us the object of the cross, which is Christ himself. Jesus gave himself. That's what Paul says. Never forget, Jesus, I mean, we talk about Jesus having his life taken from him, and Jesus being executed, Jesus being murdered. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. He could have kung fu fought all of them and won. It was no contest. And so, really, more than anybody taking the life of Christ, Christ gave himself. That was his own testimony, John 10, 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then secondly, you see the purpose of the cross. Christ gave himself, but he gave himself for what? He gave himself for our sins. That was the necessary sacrifice that had to be paid for the forgiveness of your sin. God can't just gloss over sin. Somebody's got to pay. You deserve to pay, but you can't pay because you're full of sin. There has to be a blameless offering for God to forgive sin. And that blameless offering that was given in your place was Jesus Christ. Substitutionary death of Christ. Christ died instead of us. Christ died for us. And this is why self-righteousness and self-performance when it comes to salvation won't do. Because sinners can't be good enough to save themselves. There is none that doeth good, the Bible says in Romans 3. No, not one. Self-righteousness will not do. We need a Savior who is fully righteous to take our place to lay down His life for our sin. And because Christ laid down His life, third, we see the effect of the cross. Christ gave Himself for our sins to what? To deliver us, that's right to deliver us from the present evil age, The cross was a rescue mission, the emancipation proclamation for sinners. Christ died to liberate us from the world system, to set us free. For freedom, Christ has set you free, Galatians 5.1. So in the same way that the apostle Peter was liberated from the jail cell in the Fortress Antonia prison in Jerusalem, in the same way that Paul and Silas were liberated from the jail cell in Philippi, in the same way, supernaturally, you and me who've trusted in Christ have been liberated. We've been set free from the prison house of sin, something that only the death of Christ could accomplish. And all of this, of course, was God's plan from the beginning, and that's the origin of the cross. Christ gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the present world system. Watch this. According to the what? According to the will of our God and Father. Jesus laid down his life, but here's the thing. He did so according to God's master plan. I mean, the crucifixion uh, crucifixion was not some kind of Unexpected tragedy, like so many young people that we know are tragically cut down in the prime of life. It didn't come as a surprise, at least from the perspective of the eternal will of God. When Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he declared that Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wasn't anything accidental about it. With anything surprising about it, at least not from the perspective of God. The cross was always a part of God's plan. From before the moment, the first man and the first woman sinned in the Garden of Eden. God knew what the plan was. So make sure on this Valentine's Day that your understanding about the love of God is absolutely pinpoint biblically correct. The Father does not love you because Christ died for you. Christ died for you because the Father loves you. This is the gospel. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever And all God's people said, amen. Every bit of that rests not on a thing you and I do. It rests on the amazing grace of God, the favor that God shows on despicable wicked sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you hadn't figured it out already, for those of us in the room who are recovering Pharisees. Grace is the one thing we need most of all. And thank God through the cross, He gives it to us.